0: This is Wide Margins, episode 45, Patriarchal Passivity. We're getting back into our series on Jacob now, and I want to start with a question. Here's the question. Are you a non-confrontational person? Are you a person who hates controversy, who doesn't like conflict? That's me. You're talking to a person who does not like confrontation. I, I don't enjoy it. It gives me... Sweaty palms, I get all anxious, my heart rate goes up. Uh, I don't want to ruin a relationship. I worry about the other person's feelings and I, I put way I overanalyze, okay? I'm just confessing to you right here. I overanalyze the situation. Maybe you can relate to what I'm talking about or maybe you're one of those people who enjoys controversy. There are a lot of those out there. You like to be in the fray. You, you enjoy a good fight. And I, I don't know if you're one of those people. I don't understand you. I don't really, <laughs> I don't get that. Um, I'm not saying you're wrong because we need confrontation. It, it's not good to always try to be the nice guy. There's a reason we have that slogan, nice guys finish last. It's true. A lot of times, because whenever you're trying to make everything smooth and please everybody, you often don't look out for your interests that need to be looked out for. And long term, you hurt yourself and the people around you. And this installment in the life of Jacob is a perfect illustration of this. If, if you're one of those people that lets things go and let other people take over... If you shrug things off when you don't need to, if you kick the can down the road to let somebody else handle the problem, you're going to be looking into a mirror as you listen to this episode because that's what Jacob does with his children. And there are three particular examples of this that we're going to notice in Genesis chapters 34 and 35. You're going to see that this passivity on the part of this father led to tremendous disaster, terrible results, and it'll be, it'll be eye-opening for many of you. It was for me. Let's look at the first example here where, first of all, we see Jacob letting others determine what is right. Jacob is on his way back home to Beersheba where his mother and father live, and on the way he buys property in a place called Shechem, and he settles down there for a while. And that's how chapter 33 of Genesis ends. And when we come to chapter 34, his daughter, his only daughter, Dinah, the seventh child of Leah, was violated by a local prince there in Shechem. This prince, by the way, this is a little confusing. The prince is referred to as Shechem, and the place is referred to as Shechem. Let's read the first few verses Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Dinah was probably... A teenager when all of this happened the term girl that is used in verse 4 is usually used of adolescence her excursion to see the women of the land may have been an act of rebellion against her father she probably was not where she should have been when all of this happened but stunningly when her father heard the news about all of this Moses tells us that he held his peace in other words he said nothing And he did nothing. But his sons weren't satisfied with their father's passive approach. They came into the field as soon as they had heard, according to verse 7. You'll notice they didn't hear the news from their father. They just heard the rumor about it. Everybody was talking about it. And so they're not very happy about it. And this prince, who is referred to as Shechem... He wants to marry Dinah, and he tries to enter into negotiation with her brothers. Notice, not Jacob. He's not involved in this at all. And he asks the brothers to name a bride price and a gift. And they answer Shechem, and his father's there with him too. But it says in verse 13 that they answer Shechem and his father, the king, deceitfully. Now, we've seen that word before. It's the same word, interestingly, used of Jacob when he deceived Esau, and also the word used of Laban when he deceived Jacob. This is a family tradition, deceiving, cheating, defrauding. So, they tell Prince Shechem that it'd be a disgrace to give their sister to uncircumcised men and they proposed that Shechem, his father, and the rest of the men receive circumcision so that Jacob's family and Shechem could become, as they put it, one people. The idea pleased the king and Shechem, who immediately instruct the entire city to comply with Jacob's son's request. But on the third day, while the men were still sore, the son's true intentions were revealed And Simeon and Levi took their swords and slaughtered every man in the city, captured their wives and sons, and plundered their possessions. Then they took Dinah out of Shechem's house. She must have been kidnapped or held against her will in that place, and they brought her back home. And this is when Jacob reacts. Finally, he says something. You have brought literally stirred up or muddied up. You have muddied up trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So Jacob's upset. We finally got a a reaction out of Jacob But he's mad not about the violation of his daughter or the sins of his sons, but about what the people will think. Eight times he's using personal pronouns like I and me and my. He's worried only about himself. He's not concerned about the others. He was their father. Their father. Now, parents... We need to understand that our children are born with a sense of honor. Throughout this incident, incident, Jacob's boys speak of the dishonor they suffered. They call Shechem's act outrageous, and they say, "...such a thing must not be done." They spoke of how he defiled their sister. And when Jacob confronted them, they asked, "Should "...should he treat our sister like a prostitute?" And Jacob says nothing about all of this. So here's the lesson to us. If we don't model righteousness for our children, they will come up with a form of righteousness on their own. Without parental wisdom and guidance, morality will still exist in the hearts of their children, but it gets all mixed up. And without the the guidance that they need, they will make up a system of their own that will look very much like the bloody vindication of Levi and Simeon. So, the first mistake that we see Jacob making here is letting others determine what is right instead of modeling righteousness and honor for his children and teaching them, by example, how to behave when injustices are committed. Let's go to the second one. Secondly, he made the mistake of letting others govern faith. After what happened with Dinah and the ensuing bloodbath, it was time for spiritual renewal. And God called Jacob to Bethel, the place where he had the dream about the ladder, and instructed him to build an altar there. This is how chapter 35 begins. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, that was near Shechem. What are these foreign gods? They were household idols. And uh, the earrings, you notice, they had to be disposed of as well, probably because they were fashioned in figurines of gods and goddesses as well. So all of the graven images, all the images of false gods had to be collected up and disposed of. Where did they come from? Nobody knows where they came from. They were certainly in abundance at Laban's home in Padan-Aram and in Shechem where Jacob and his family spent a lot of time. No doubt there were plenty of them there. What's more, what's more important is the question of why Jacob's family was having to go through this purification process. How It didn't seem that Jacob had idols of his own. He was collecting them from his wives and children. Now, wasn't this the patriarchal age? Wasn't this the time when fathers were supposed to be leading their houses? Wasn't this the day where the head of the household was the father, and he acted as priest over his family and his servants and all those under his authority? Jacob was in charge here, so why are we going through this? This is another example of parental passivity. And the incident suggests several things not to do when you find yourself in the position of being the spiritual guide of your household. Let me share some of these with you. Number one, don't live as if God is only in one place. Jacob feels the need to purge his household of these false gods because he has been called to Bethel, which is a place meaning the house of God. He doesn't want to go to Bethel. Um, defiled by these household idols. Does he not recognize that God is omnipresent? He is everywhere all at once. Like David said, where can you flee from His presence? He couldn't get away from God, but he's acting as if we better clean up our act before we go down to Bethel. Same attitude that you have from people who act one way on Sunday and then... Monday through Saturday, act a totally different way, as if God's not watching all the time that He lives in the church building or something ridiculous like that. God is everywhere. Don't act like He only lives in one place. Number two, don't come to God only in times of distress. The purging of Jacob's house falls on the heels of this scandal that occurred in Shechem. And now Jacob's all, the, all of the sudden interested in purification. Let's do something to cleanse us of Dinah's violation of Simeon and Levi's violence. Let, let's get a fresh start. And it seems like it has been a while since Jacob has done anything like this. He's treating God as if he were a fire escape. Don't do that. Don't go to God only in times of distress and trial don't be like the men lost in the gulf during a ferocious storm and one began to pray and he was soon interrupted by the other who said john be careful that you don't promise too much lands in sight these men were using prayer as a fire escape don't don't be like that where you you only go to god in times of distress some people never call on god unless they're in trouble And then when he doesn't answer them in the affirmative, they're ready to turn their backs on him and give up and say, well, I guess he doesn't exist. Listen to what God said through Zechariah. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 13. Number three. Another thing this incident suggests is don't allow rivals to God into your home. Jacob should have stopped these household gods at the front door. The Bible describes God as a God of glory. Glory is difficult to define. It has something to do with beauty and splendor. And when we glorify God, we find God to be our utmost joy and highest praise. That's a general description, but it's the best way I can think of to describe what it means to give God glory. And God is jealous with His glory. Now, that's a difficult thing because we know as humans we're not supposed to be jealous. And yet the Scriptures call God a jealous God. The term that is used for God's jealousy is a different term than what is used of human jealousy. The word jealous, as it is applied to humans, is never used in connection with God. And the jealousy of God means he tolerates no rivals. He alone is to be worshipped, and he demonstrates his intolerance of infidelity by punishing sin. So you can see this jealousy in the First and Second Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's Exodus 23 and 5, 3 through 5. It's also a key theme throughout the book of Isaiah. The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. That's Isaiah 23, verse 9. Here's Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And then the key verse of Isaiah 48 is verse 11, which says, For my own sake, for my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. We need to think about that even today. I know we don't carry around household idols per se, but... Anything that you put before God is an idol. We idolize things today. We talk about it all the time. We use that language. I idolize that. He is my idol. I worship this or worship that. And I know we don't really mean what we say sometimes when we use that kind of language, but we've got to be careful about it. And more importantly, we've got to be careful about what's taking up most of our time most of our thoughts most of our praise what we're giving glory to what brings us joy be careful about what brings you the utmost fulfillment and joy because you become like what you worship and the only one we should be becoming more and more like is god Idolatry is destructive in that regard because it it begins to shape us in, in forms other than that of God. So be careful about that. Don't allow rivals to God into your home. And then, number four, don't hang on to relics of your sinful past. Take a close look at what Jacob did with the idols. It doesn't say that he buried them. It says that he hid them under the terebinth tree near Shechem. He didn't bury them. The word there is the same word that would be used for hiding treasure, and that the tree was like the X that marks the spot. Remember, Jacob owns this property in Shechem, so for some inexplicable reason, he was hanging on to these sinful relics of the past. Uh, To our knowledge, the, the idols were never dug up by the Israelites, but they returned to idols over and over and over again it was a part of their history until God destroyed them and uh, took them into captivity in the book of Jeremiah you see them dealing with this near the end before the captivity and in Jeremiah 1618 the Lord says first I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Can, make, can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods." I have a friend who um, asked me about the use of the word gods in the Bible in connection with idols. And uh, it, it can be confusing because you think about it, why, why are they called gods? Well, they're perceived to be gods by others. They're not truly regarded as gods. And that last line I think is a good example of that where Jeremiah uses the word as the idol worshipers use it first can man make for himself gods and then denies that they should rightfully be called gods in the next line such are not gods i think that's an explanation of how the word is used in the bible when it's lower case they're not really gods nobody really believes that so we have to be careful and not hang on to relics of our past because If we don't bury them and do away with them totally, they will follow us as that example from Jeremiah shows for many, many years throughout many generations after us. Closets are not good enough for skeletons. Bones belong in a grave. And if you have a sinful past, repent, change, turn your back on it. Don't look back. Don't just hide it and place an X on the spot so you can get back to it anytime you want to. Leave it for good. That's the way you set the course for faith in the true God in your home. One last example. I won't spend as much time on this one. But another thing we see Jacob doing here in his passivity is letting others play the role that he should have played as father. There's another despicable scene recorded in Genesis 35 in which Reuben, the firstborn, commits adultery with Bilhah, his father's concubine. Now that's about as bad as bad can get. How did Jacob react? You guessed it. All he said, all the Bible says is that Israel heard it. He heard it, and he didn't do anything about it. Most commentators explain Reuben's actions... As an attempt to seize in his father's lifetime his firstborn's right to be head of the clan, he tried to be first place. He wanted to, to become ruler of the family. And he did this in a very despicable way. And Jacob didn't do anything about it. I don't know if he wanted to be Reuben's best friend or he didn't want to hurt Reuben's feelings. If that's the case, parents, your kids don't need a pal. They don't need a buddy from you. They need parents. Don't abdicate your role to your kids. They're incapable of raising themselves. You throw a kid outside in the outside world for just a few hours and they'll probably die. I mean, that's that's the way I think of it. If you put a toddler outside, how long will it take before he perishes? Not very long. That's, That's why they need us. And... It, it may get worse when they become teenagers. I don't know. What do you think? I think you send a teenager out into the world by himself or herself. I know it was done in the past, but they grow up much much more slowly these days than in the past. How long will it take them uh, before they cease to breathe? Not very long. There's a proverb. It says, Folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from them. We need to understand they, are, they arrive on the scene full of folly. We can't let them rule themselves. Our role as parents is to guide them and bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, Jacob would eventually deal with Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. We'll save that for another episode. But by that point, all he could do was condemn them. You wonder, what would have happened if he had acted sooner? Maybe he could have prevented a lot of heartache and maybe even saved their souls. It's easier on the front end maybe to overlook problems and just hope they'll go away. But in the long run, taking action pays big dividends and passivity leads to ruin. Unfortunately, we're going to see more of that ruin in the future but we also see a glimmer of hope in the story of Jacob. So keep listening next time on Wide Margins.